I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Friday, July 1st, 2022, the 527th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. If you are hearing this podcast, if it popped up on your app two days after the date of the podcast, that's because you, my friend, are not a paid subscriber on Substack. The only way to hear the podcast on the day of its release is to go to I'mYourModerator.substack.com and sign up for a paid subscription. It is as low as $50 a year or $5 a month, comes out to less than a quarter per episode, and you'll get all the writing right when I release it. So please, if you have the ability and you like the work, go to I'mYourModerator.substack.com, help support my ability to keep doing the show. So Half the year is already over. I feel like New Year's Eve was a very short time ago. This year has flown by. We are halfway done with 2022. We are a mere four months away, roughly, from the midterms that will have many of the Democrat communists and many Republican communists as well removed from our government. And that will be helpful, you know, assuming that some elections yield proper outcomes. But it's pretty nice to know that we've made it through nearly two years, this blatantly illegitimate power grab, and we're still standing. We're still moving forward. And that is something to celebrate, 
this weekend as we prepare for the 4th of July on Monday. I very likely will not have a show on Monday. Hopefully, I'm just out there celebrating America, but we'll see how it goes. I want to remind everybody, as I did last year, how important it is when you are around people to express your positions and not back down to people who might be promoting what you know to be absolute nonsense, the sort of nonsense that is threatening our country's ability to move forward. Don't be afraid to tell people that masks and lockdowns don't work. Vaccines aren't very safe and effective. They're actually really deadly. We have a slave trade on the southern border. Inflation is Joe Biden's fault. It existed before Putin's war in Ukraine. Gas prices and food prices were skyrocketing well before Vladimir Putin ever invaded the stronghold of the comedic actor and the global communists. Yes, our country is funding Nazis in Ukraine. That's a real thing. Yes, our country was funding bio labs in Ukraine. That's a real thing. No, Putin never tried to take Kiev. No, he's not losing the war. No, there is no chance he will ever lose the war. And no, he's not trying to take over all of Europe. No, January 6th was not a very violent insurrection. No, Donald Trump did not incite a very violent insurrection. Yes, we have political prisoners rotting in jail without trial. The regime is doing that. The regime is responsible for that. Yes, there were law enforcement and intel assets among the agitators on January 6th. Yes, the January 6th committee actually is a sham committee. They are not constitutional. They are not legitimate. They do not have the power to bring charges against Donald Trump. The stories they're telling are lies. They are easily provable as lies. You need to be assertive and prove them. Trump didn't try to Jason Bourne his way into commandeering the presidential SUV so he could drive it down to the very violent insurrection and join his armed battalion as they storm the Capitol. That stuff just didn't happen. And of course, the most important one of all is that, yes, they did go out and attempt to steal the 2020 election, and they have been stealing elections for a very long time. They have been doing it for the benefit of people with a D next to their name and an R next to their name. No, it's not just about Donald Trump. It's about everybody's vote counting. Yes, they steal minority votes most often. They steal old people's votes most often. They go after the most vulnerable people in society and exploit them for their labor and their political power, just as they do with all of the illegal immigrants. You need to be able to stand up for these things. You need to be able to say there is no way in the world that Joe Biden got 81 million real legal American votes and there's no proof that he did no proof anywhere. They will not allow us to examine the evidence that Joe Biden actually got 81 million real legal American votes. And why won't they allow that examination? It's because it didn't happen. We are at the point where these are far less controversial opinions to express in public than they were two years ago. And 
You can take that from me because I have been expressing these opinions in public for two years and dealing with the blowback. But that blowback is decreasing. People are understanding, oh, maybe those crazy people, those conspiracy theorists, maybe they have a point. This is when you go on the attack. This is when you tell people how things actually are because they've spent their entire lives being lied to. And now they are understanding that they're being lied to. They may not understand the scope of the dishonesty and how widespread and constant it is. They probably don't realize that everything they're seeing in the news is false. But you have to imagine that by this point, they're realizing at least some of it is. And that's what you go after. You say, hey, communist, tell me something you know the media lied about, that you disagree with the media about. Maybe they've figured out the vaccines. Maybe they figured out that Donald Trump did not collude with Russia. Maybe they figured out that the Ukraine impeachment was nonsense, that Hunter Biden's laptop was real. Maybe they've seen through the gender agenda. Maybe they think masks are stupid. Allow them the opportunity to express those things. And then you just say, hey, do you know anything else like that? Is there any chance the media might have lied to you about something else? I mean, these are all very important issues. They're not the sorts of things that a responsible media would lie to a population about, right? And if they lie about this one very important thing, if you can tell that they clearly lied, well, don't you think that they could have lied about other important things? That's why I always say at the end of every episode, they lied to you about a pandemic. They lied to you about a pandemic. What would they not lie to you about? There's absolutely nothing. They created a world-changing crisis, all based on a series of lies. And you don't have to believe that the virus didn't exist to understand that. The virus kills one out of a thousand people who get it. Almost all of them being over 70 years old with an average of four comorbidities. And that's all assuming that the tests worked, but we know the tests don't work. And we know that COVID was listed on death certificates because there was an incentive to do that. There was an incentive to create positive COVID tests. There was an incentive for hospitals to mark COVID. We watched the very responsible news channels put these numbers up on television 24 hours a day, watching as they escalate constantly. Ooh, now there's 100,000 deaths. That's like an entire stadium full of people. They pushed the fear and pushed the fear and pushed the fear. They created the crisis. And they used the crisis to put lockdowns in place to change the economy entirely. They targeted groups of American workers and said, you can't have your job anymore or you can't have your business anymore. But don't worry, we're going to give you $1,500 while we ruin your life. They did all that for a disease with an infection fatality rate that is absolutely on par with an average flu, something we do not even think think about 
And this virus took over the entire world, took over our lives in every imaginable way. And they did it gleefully while making TikTok videos. They lied about hospital capacity. They lied about the things Trump said in his press conferences. They lied about hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. They implemented a deadly hospital protocol and made it the only thing doctors could do. They said masking would stop the spread of the virus. They said double masking would stop the spread of the virus. They said it would end in two weeks or two months. It's been over two years now. They lied to you about a pandemic. What would they not lie about? And if they're unresponsive, if the communists at the barbecue, who thinks it's tacky that so many flags are waving, is unresponsive, well, you just say, hey, good luck with that, commie. I'll see you later. And of course, I know what you're concerned about. That communist is going to scurry on over to the other side of the barbecue and try to destroy your reputation or call you evil or say, ooh, I think we might have a QAnon over there. Let it happen, all right? Let these people sound crazy to other people. Have some confidence in the fact that you are a good person who is on the path to better informing themselves. Certainly, you know far more than whatever communist you're arguing with. And time has borne that out. Have some faith in everybody else's ability to discern truth for themselves. If some nutty communist is trying to slander you, well, you're going to come out looking brilliant and they're going to come out looking insane. Stop being scared of these people. They're not smarter. They don't know anything. They're not right, ultimately. And it doesn't matter how many facts they can recite. Their statistics don't matter. None of it is true. You watched it in COVID. Their studies are nonsense. It doesn't mean anything that the experts say or the science says or so many scientists agree. None of those are arguments about the issue. They have nothing to do with the issue. Let them recite all of their facts and then ask them what those facts mean and how that proves your side, your viewpoint, incorrect. Because they don't have the ability to actually do that. And they'll eventually call you racist or sexist or homophobic or a conspiracy theorist or a QAnon or a science denier or an election denier or a vaccine denier. And they'll get mad and they'll walk away. And depending on how mad they get, they will try to attack you in various ways for either a few seconds or a few hours or a few days or who knows. But none of that is a reason to back down to any of these people. So I'm not saying you should go out and get in fights on the 4th of July. Not saying that at all. I'm just saying if somebody is saying anti-American things in your presence, defend your country, defend your beliefs, and do not let these communists dominate the conversation. 85% of the American public believes that the country is on the wrong track. And that includes 78% of Democrats. And you might say, okay, but there's some percentage of that that are surely just way on the left. And they think there's not enough communism happening. And yes, that's fine. 
You are absolutely right. There are certainly people who answer that question in that direction, which is not the direction generally implied by the poll. When 95% of Republicans or whatever it was, I think it was 92, when they say the country is headed in the wrong direction, that means a different thing than when some extreme communist says it. We think there is way too much communism. They think there is not enough communism. We are both upset about the amount of communism. But regardless, 85% overall and 85% of independents who, as Steve Bannon often says, are a proxy for the American people. And I can accept that rationale. But my point is, if you're around 10 people, you have your opinion, you're scared of what everybody else around you thinks, you don't want to express your opinion because you are used to having your opinion and your position suppressed and maligned. You are used to being slandered by these people. Well, the tides have turned there. Even in the most liberal circles, people are starting to understand that something has gone seriously wrong for their viewpoint. Chances are you're going to be able to talk to at least half of those people, even in very liberal circles, because the more rational of the ones who are still not actually awake, they're at least curious about what else might be going on. Because they're not getting it from anywhere. They're not getting it from their curated news feeds on Apple News or whatever other app they use. They're not getting it on social media from Instagram or Twitter because all of it is censored. They're not getting it from the propaganda state media on their televisions. And they're scared to ask all of these questions because they know what people like them will do to people who say and think the no-no things. So if you're able to withstand a few angry communists, a few evil stares, maybe some insults, then you're able to be a proxy for the curiosity of these other people who are in their waking up process at some point. If someone is willing to listen to you, you gotta go. You gotta speak truth to them. And allow them to ask questions and allow everybody else to listen. Let commies get enraged. Their insults don't matter. They can't hurt you. Remember when we all grew up and it was sticks and stones can break my bones, but names will never hurt me. What happened to that? Now everything is based on image and public reputation. We act like these names can destroy us. But the truth is, if you're around a lot of those people and you constantly feel like if you say the wrong thing, you're going to be attacked. Well, you've surrounded yourself with really terrible people and you need better friends. And I know that some people are like, well, yeah, but what about if I'm with coworkers, my colleagues, my employees or my employer? Well, can I really say this stuff then? Well, you got to make that judgment for yourself. It depends on what you prioritize. The question I would ask would be, how has it gone so far? How's it gone so far? I was talking to a friend of mine today who's a restaurateur in Los Angeles, and she has been slowly bled out by California's government for the last two years. She had an extremely successful restaurant in Los Angeles. Everybody knew of it. It was kind of a staple 
And she's not sure at this point how much longer she can go on. She said it has cost her more to keep her business open than to close, but that's her business. It's her life's work. It's her career. It's her life savings. And she's trying to hold on, but we're talking about people in Los Angeles. The restaurant community has seen almost no one actually stand up for themselves. The community collectively has not done that. It was always about trying to figure out how to get additional funding from the state to be able to comply with the COVID guidelines. Very little action, very little public awareness of what was happening. Everyone scared to be called a science denier. Everyone scared that the reputation of their restaurant would be destroyed. Their market would be destroyed. Their customers would no longer like them. Well, it's been two years. The restaurant industry is barely surviving. So what happened with the compliance? What good did it bring you to comply? Your business stayed open a little longer. Nobody got mad at you for not being COVID friendly. I guess those are wins, right? But otherwise, it's just a constant crushing slowly of certain businesses that they simply don't want to exist anymore. Government has systematically destroyed these people for two years. And they have the ability to do that because the citizenry refused to stand up. I've been saying this for a very long time, and I am honestly really surprised that it has taken this long in general. But all of this ends when enough people have realized the truth and decided they don't want this global communist order to be the future of their world and the future that they're leaving for generations to come. When enough people decide that, all of this is over. The most important thing is the awakening. It has always been the awakening. And that is what I mean by the awakening, by the way. When people realize the truth, when they decide they don't want that future and they begin to take action, that is how we progress. We're getting that percentage of people up to 60, up to 70, up to 80. When we start getting to 85, 90, 95, that is when everything is over and we usher in the American Renaissance because it is ahead. And I've been saying that for two years as well. I am as optimistic as I have ever been about the future of this country because things are only going in one direction. There is only the objective empirical reality. We all may experience it differently. We all may have different beliefs and views and opinions about what we are experiencing, but there still is only this reality. And the fact that a large portion of the country has been talked into a false reality and led into a false reality doesn't mean that we need to give that false reality equal credit. There is no reverse awakening where they have made their argument so well that people just accept the false reality. Accepting the false reality is the starting point for people when it comes to the awakening. Their ability to collect new members is gone. And that's why they're always targeting the children, because those are the only people who can be convinced that the false reality is, in fact, real. People who have woken up are never going back in that direction. 
And there are more of us every day, thousands more of us every day, millions or tens of millions more of us since the illegitimate president was installed. It is not going to turn around. Nothing can stop what is happening. And when you truly understand that and you begin to truly embody that, then there is only optimism. The insults and the slanders and the struggles, these things are temporary. These are things that we will move past because it's worth it. And not only is it worth it, it's necessary. There is no other choice. Their future is not a future. It is the end of human liberty. And they aren't even trying to hide it. That future is entirely unacceptable. So we do not accept it. And we need to be willing to stand up for all of that before we lose it. So speaking of losing things, the communists are losing their minds over the possibility of losing their control over American institutions. So let's start with the fake president who said this while he was in Europe forming illegitimate agreements with the European global communists and selling out our country. We have the strongest economy in the world. Our inflation rates are lower than other nations in the world. The one thing that has been destabilizing is the outrageous behavior of the Supreme Court of the United States on overruling not only Roe v. Wade, but essentially challenging the right to privacy. We've been a leader in the world in terms of personal rights and privacy rights. And it is a mistake, in my view, for the Supreme Court to do what it did. Now, it isn't true at all that we have the strongest economy in the world, and it's not true that we have lower inflation rates than the rest of the world. Those are factually, provably false statements. But that's not the part of that clip that I want to focus on. He is calling the Supreme Court of the United States a co-equal branch of our government extremist in front of NATO logos on the backdrop while in Europe. He is telling the rest of the world that a branch of American government is illegitimate because they have made decisions that Joe Biden doesn't like and that the global communists don't like. That branch of government exists to provide a check on the executive branch's power and the legislative branch's power. They are not required to hand down decisions that Joe Biden approves of. It doesn't matter how many people voted for Joe Biden. He could have had the biggest landslide victory of all time. And of course, that's exactly how they describe his victory. But regardless, the Supreme Court does not have to follow what they call the popular will of the people. The Supreme Court is there to follow the Constitution and to interpret the Constitution. And whether or not the laws the legislature passes are constitutional, whether or not the things the Biden administration does are constitutional, that's their job. And he's upset that they're doing it. And he's saying this on the world stage while being an illegitimately installed president. It would be the stuff of authoritarian dictators if he was only saying this in the United States to the United States. But he's actually doing it as a representative of the United States to the global community 
for the benefit of the global community. And the global communists are seeing their grip on power, their ability to implement their agenda being threatened by the Supreme Court. So the goal now is to invalidate the Supreme Court. They are actively trying to delegitimize the Supreme Court. And these are the same people who have talked for six years now about the threats to the institutions, the threats to democracy. We're harming people's belief in the legitimacy of their elections, which is very dangerous for people who like to have illegitimate elections over and over and over again. They tell us that asking questions about an obviously stolen election is a threat to democracy and that the people trying to, quote unquote, delegitimize our elections are domestic terrorists telling the big lie. These people are trying to delegitimize an entire branch of the American. And we're told that it's okay because they're protecting people's rights. Absolute lunacy. And speaking of absolute lunacy, let's check in with the person who's trying to replace Joe Biden. It's the most arrogant misreading of history and law that you could ever find. It is so narrow and baseless. And, you know, it's a look, it's a results. It's a results oriented decision. Um, put as many words down on the page as you can get. Basically say that, you know, really it was a big mistake. Uh, should never have done it. Throw it back to the states, which is all part of what this court is doing on a range of issues. But I found that it was um, not only ignorant, but almost dismissive to the point of contempt for women's lives and women's choices and the difficulties that women of all, you know, backgrounds. And this has nothing to do with your opinion, your personal opinion, your religious belief. That's that was the whole point of choice. A results oriented opinion. They just wanted to put as many words on the page as possible. That's what Samuel Alito was thinking when he wrote the Dobbs decision. Man, I hope I get my page count really, really high. And it's amazing to accuse the other side of having a results oriented opinion when it comes to these cases. The case was decided on the constitutionality of Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. There's nothing in the Constitution about abortion. Therefore, they sent it back to the states and they are decentralizing power generally because the Constitution was written to keep power in the hands of the people. Hillary Clinton, of course, is part of the movement to remove power from the people and to centralize power so that she and a small, let's say, cabal of people like her get to decide everything for everyone world over. We are told we're domestic terrorists for doubting the reported outcome of an obviously stolen election, even as we can see the nearly the entire system of fraud that allowed them to steal the election in the first place. We can see all of that. We can describe it in detail. We can show how the whole thing went down. We can show evidence that it did happen on multiple different levels with multiple different, entirely separate sets of reasoning. 
There are lots of ways to get to the conclusion that election fraud and election theft are very, very real. And it's because of that reality that you can find out it's true in so many different ways. If it was false, it would be awfully hard to reach that conclusion in a series of different ways using all kinds of evidence. Meanwhile, the wannabe ruler of the world is saying that the Supreme Court is illegitimate because she's upset about the outcome of their decisions. We have an actual stolen election in front of us. And for talking about it, we're domestic terrorists because we don't accept the outcome. But she's saving the world. So it's okay that she refuses to accept as legitimate the decisions of the Supreme Court. Now, that freakout has extended well beyond Roe versus Wade at this point, and some of it is a direct result of the cases that I went through yesterday, the West Virginia versus the EPA case and Moore versus Harper that the Supreme Court is going to hear this fall when their next term begins. Here's how Hillary Clinton reacted to that on Twitter this morning. She said the Supreme Court's decision to hear a case next term that would give state legislatures huge power over elections is the biggest threat to our democracy since January 6th. Now, that is in direct opposition to what the Constitution says, but she is relying on the ignorance of the child brains in the Democrat communist base. She knows that they understand all of this to mean we need to control the elections because the other side is evil and can't be trusted. And of course, they have absolutely no idea what the Constitution says about elections. And because they want to take over absolutely everything, they want the federal government to come in and fix it. It is always run to the authority. The authority will solve it. If the authority can't solve the problem for us, well, then the authority needs more power and we will help the authority acquire power and centralize that power so that the authority can then finally solve it for us. Now, I expect she's going to keep up with this idea and that the Democrat Communist Party will support her in that there is a clear effort to delegitimize the Supreme Court. And they're not only concerned with the decisions that just happened, they're concerned with this Moore versus Harper case in the fall. As usual, they would have been better off by just not mentioning it at all. But now they are clearly exposing their agenda. Just the other day, I was reading a tweet from Hillary, or maybe it was from Elizabeth Warren, but it was pushing the idea that The right to abortion must be codified in law and that the election control on a federal level must be codified into law. It was worth taking out the filibuster to do those things, to accomplish those two tasks. That's what they really need. Aborted fetal tissue and control over elections. And yesterday it was supported that Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema would not be supporting the end of the filibuster. So all of that is kind of off the table. But you can imagine that they will keep trying over and over and over again in any manner possible to get that aborted fetal tissue supply up 
and to make sure that they can control the outcome of American elections. But let's take a little constitution break, shall we? This is from Heritage, and this is Article 1, Section 4, Clause 1. The times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. But the Congress may at any time by law make or alter such regulations except as to the places of choosing senators. So it says right there that the state legislatures control the time, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives. It says it right in the Constitution, and Hillary Clinton is nonetheless pretending that the exact opposite is true because she knows that people in the Democrat communist base will agree with her. They will want the outcome that that viewpoint will allow, and they don't care about the Constitution at all. But let's understand this a little better. The purpose of this provision of the Constitution was twofold. First, it made clear the division of responsibility with respect to the conduct of the election of federal senators and representatives. That responsibility lay primarily with the states and secondarily with Congress. Second, the clause lodged the power to regulate elections in the respective legislative branches of the states and the federal government, not with the executive or judicial branches. Opponents to the Constitution hotly contested the clause during the ratification debates. The concern of the Anti-Federalists was that the default prerogatives to Congress would result in members of Congress manipulating election laws so that they could stay in office indefinitely. Alternatively, Congress might alter the times and places of elections so as to make it extremely difficult to vote, undermining the franchise. On the other hand, Defenders of the clause argued that if Congress did not retain residual power to control federal elections, state officials might effectively destroy Congress by failing to make rules for the election of its members. As Alexander Hamilton remarked in The Federalist Number 59, every government ought to contain within itself the means of its own preservation. Hamilton argued that the provision was a reasonable compromise that gave Congress default powers that would be exercised, quote, whenever extraordinary circumstances might render that interposition necessary to its safety. In addition, the fact that the Congress as a whole and not any single House of Congress was authorized to make or alter regulations under the clause meant that a national consensus between the people's or democratic branch of the legislature and the Senate representing the states would have to take place before any changes could occur. So again, the power to make these changes is vested in the representatives of the people so that the system when working properly is representing the will of the people and implementing the will of the people. And if they don't do that, if they fail to do that, then the people can hold them accountable through free and fair elections with one person, one vote. The framers of the Constitution drew upon British precedents and state practices in their understanding of what constituted the, quote, times, places, and manner of holding elections, but in a more precise way. 
British and state practice had subsumed the qualifications of electors and candidates and the times and places of elections in the phrase manner of elections. The framers, on the other hand, thought the elements of elections should be more particularly delineated. As Hamilton's discussion in The Federalist Numbers 59 through 61 made clear, the times, places, and manner provisions of the election regulations clause were to be taken literally. They referred to states having the primary power of determining the dates, the locations, and the conditions under which elections for federal senators and representatives would be held. Congress had only a secondary power in this regard and had no power to alter the location states chose for selecting senators. This last, James Madison argued at the Constitutional Convention, was reserved to the state legislatures, which alone had the sovereign right to determine where to convene to elect senators. However, there were some additional restrictions. In response to the complaint that the federal government might attempt to manipulate the places elections took place to benefit, quote, the wealthy and the well-born, Hamilton remarked in the Federalist Number 60 that securing the rich, such a preference could only be done by, quote, prescribing qualifications of property, either for those who may elect or be elected. But this forms no part of the power to be conferred upon the national government. Its authority would be expressly restricted to the regulation of the times, the places and the manner of elections. The qualifications of the person who may choose or be chosen are defined and fixed in the Constitution and are unalterable by the legislature. Since ratification of the Constitution, there have been many legal developments that have altered the provisions of Article 1, Section 4, the most significant of which came after the Civil War. The 15th Amendment in 1870 prohibited voter discrimination on the basis of race. The Enforcement Act of 1870 had some beneficial effect in curbing the abuse of the electoral process, particularly in the South, but with its evisceration in United States versus Reese, 1875, and United States versus Cruikshank, 1876, Southern states were able effectively to disenfranchise black citizens. And of course, those were Democrats doing that. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 resurrected tough legal prohibitions on racial discrimination in voting and transformed Southern politics and American politics in the process. The most important and controversial of the act's original provisions, sections four and five, required states predominantly in the South, covered by section four, to seek pre-clearance under section five from the Federal Department of Justice or U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia for any new voting practices or procedures post-dating November 1st, 1964. The constitutionality of these provisions was upheld in South Carolina versus Katzenbach, 1966. The 1970 Voting Rights Act proposed to reduce the voting age in national, state, and local elections to 18. In Oregon versus Mitchell, 1970, the court upheld this provision as it applied to national elections, but disallowed it as it applied to state and local elections. The 26th Amendment effectively overruled this latter holding. The scope of the Voting Rights Act's coverage has increased over the decades and continues to impose significant constraints on states covered by the act, particularly when it comes to redistricting. In addition to statutory constraints, Congress and the people have altered the electoral process through the amending process. The 17th Amendment altered the manner of conducting the elections of senators by requiring their popular election. 
The 19th Amendment prohibited voter discrimination on the basis of sex. The 24th Amendment prohibited poll taxes in federal elections. And as mentioned above, the 26th Amendment gave 18-year-olds the right to vote. Despite Alexander Hamilton's assurance that Congress would regulate elections only in extraordinary circumstances, congressional intervention has been significant. In 1842, Congress required the election of members of the House of Representatives by district. Repealed in 1929, the single-member district rule was restored by Congress in 1967. Also, until 1929, Congress required that each district's territory be compact and contiguous with substantially the same number of inhabitants. Wood versus Broom, 1932. In recent decades, the Supreme Court has stepped into the electoral process. In Westbury versus Sanders, 1964, the Supreme Court determined that despite congressional practice, Article 1, Section 2, Clause 1, mandated that the one-person, one-vote formula be applied to each congressional district. Critics of the court's decision have noted that it ignored the language of Article 1, Section 4, Clause 1, which appeared to leave questions of reapportionment and redistricting to the legislative, not judicial branch of government. And that is part of what's at stake in Moore versus Harper. Under the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause, the court has also indicated that gerrymandered districts can be an indication of an unconstitutional, racially motivated redistricting plan. Shaw versus Reno, 1993. However, the court has not yet required as a constitutional matter that districts be compact and contiguous. Shaw versus Reno and Miller versus Johnson, 1995, also highlighted the potential conflict between the demands of the Voting Rights Act for the creation of safe minority seats and the constitutional prohibition on redistricting in which race is the predominant factor motivating the redistricting. And of course, we are continuously told that whenever Republicans are running the redistricting, that it's them being racist, even though it's the Democrats, as always, who are focused on race when redistricting. The passage of the 2006 Voting Rights Act has raised the further constitutional question of whether jurisdictions covered by Section 5 of the Act still have to seek preclearance from the Federal Department of Justice for changes to their electoral practices, which the 2006 Voting Rights Act extended through 2031. Beginning with the Tillman Act in 1907, Congress has imposed a growing number of restrictions on elections and campaign financing. The most significant piece of legislation has been the 1971 Federal Election Campaign Act, amended in 1974. It was this legislation that was at issue in the Supreme Court's seminal decision, Buckley versus Vallejo in 1976, which, in the face of a First Amendment challenge, set the ground rules for campaign finance legislation, generally disallowing restrictions on expenditures by candidates, but permitting restrictions on contributions by individuals and corporations. The Bipartisan Campaign Finance Reform Act of 2002, which amended the Federal Election Campaign Act, sought to impose further restrictions on soft money contributions and electioneering communications, such as issue advertisements by corporations and unions. But these latter provisions were deemed unconstitutional restrictions on political speech in Citizens United versus the Federal Election Commission in 2010. 
And I think it's important to understand that history and to understand what the Constitution says about who is responsible for setting election regulations, because we're going to begin to hear a lot about this in the future. We're going to see Hillary Clinton and people who are on Hillary Clinton's side continue to promote the idea that the federal government must take over elections because Republican states who are trying to actually create election integrity, not that there are nearly enough Republicans in Republican states actually doing that, but that they're all doing it because they're racist and they want to take over the country. They're trying to seize power from the federal government, but that's not what they're doing because that power is already reserved for the states. And the fact that that power might be more fully returned to the states is the cause of the freakout. So yesterday, the Brennan Center for Justice, they call themselves nonpartisan, but they are just a left-wing legal think tank. They tweeted, the Supreme Court agreed to hear Moore versus Harper an appeal advocating for extreme interpretation of the Constitution that could make it easier for state legislatures to suppress the vote, draw unfair election districts, enable partisan interference in ballot counting. And again, these are all things Democrats are already doing. So AOC quote tweeted this Brennan Center tweet, and she wrote, we are witnessing a judicial coup in process. If the president and Congress do not restrain the court now, the court is signaling they will come for the presidential election next. All our leaders, regardless of party, must recognize this constitutional crisis for what it is. That is the communist and social media influencer Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez saying that the president and the Congress must restrain a co-equal branch of government that exists to provide a check on the power of the executive branch and the legislative branch. And I know that we can play the imagine Trump said this game about almost everything all the time, but it's pretty relevant here. Imagine Donald Trump suggested that he take the power from his branch and the power from another branch of government and use it to destroy the power of the third branch. Imagine Donald Trump did that. Oh, my institutions. These people are hypocrites. They do not care about anything at all because they have no principles. Everything they believe is relative and beneficial to them. They will gladly represent the completely opposite principles if it serves to advance their cause. And they will do it anytime with no shame, no guilt, no remorse. And they don't care if you call them out on it because they will just say that whatever issue it is, is so important that in this particular case, Delegitimizing the institutions is actually totally worth it. The issue is that important. We have to just do the right thing. Why are they so scared? Why are they so scared about the states setting the rules of their elections and the states doing the redistricting? Well, they're worried that the people's representatives will not do the bidding of the global communist agenda, and they simply cannot have that. They've been working for decades to complete this plan, 
And they are awfully close to completing it. If it wasn't for Donald Trump, maybe the awakening doesn't happen fast enough. Maybe they would have won. I don't think they would have. I think that we would have risen up sooner or later, or at least I would like to think that. But they were getting close and they don't want to let it all go. They have as much power as they have ever had. And things are simultaneously going as badly for them as they ever have. And that is because they are incompetent. They think they are right all the time. If the people don't agree with them, then the people must be overridden because the people have the wrong idea. The people are too stupid to understand what's good for them. Their grip on power is slipping. And now they're exposing exactly who they are, exactly what they think of the American government, the American system of government, the American constitution and American voters. They know the voters are not on their side. They know they're not winning legitimate elections. If the voters were on their side, they would look to the voters and they would convince the voters of what's right and wrong. They would make the argument. They would take their case to the voters and let the voters decide. You give me free and fair elections and I have absolute faith in the voters of this country to decide things the right way. I'm willing to take that bet every single time about any of the major issues, abortion, immigration, how the economy should be run. The communists aren't able to convince anyone. That's why they use propaganda. That's why they use censorship. They can't convince anyone that their position is correct without it. And so let's see what the geniuses at the Brennan Center actually think about our Constitution. This is from June 28th, a few days ago. Originalism run amok at the Supreme Court. This is by Michael Waldman. Last week's Supreme Court rulings on abortion and guns shook the country. Both rely on a radical approach to how to read the Constitution making major social policy by purporting to use originalism. Together, they show how flawed that can be. Liberals must find their voice and put forward a better way to explain the Constitution and how it works. Or we can expect more weeks like this one every June as we await for oracles in robes to consult the vapors of history and tell us our fates. And that's, of course, what they will pretend that these Supreme Court justices are just implementing their own personal political agenda, and there is actually no basis in the Constitution for these opinions. But in the midst of that was a pretty incredible idea. Well, first of all, he's talking about liberals, what liberals must do, which is odd from a nonpartisan organization like the Brennan Center. But he said liberals must find their voice and put forward a better way to explain the Constitution and how it works, which is especially amusing for people who do not talk about the Constitution at all. The notion that the Constitution should be read as frozen in time is a relatively new invention. Certainly, it is not what the founding generation had in mind. As Chief Justice John Marshall wrote, we must never forget that it is a Constitution we are expounding. A great charter would enable a growing nation to meet its new challenges. Dred Scott was the first major originalist ruling, claiming to find its defense of slavery and its assertion that even free black people could not be citizens in the original intent of the founders. It was such a notorious disaster that the approach was shelved for a century. The insistence that original intent or 
original public meaning is the only legitimate way to read the Constitution came as part of the conservative reaction to expanding rights in the 1960s and 1970s. Supposedly, it would take the politics out of judging. It was a wildly controversial idea first proposed in a big way in a speech by Attorney General Edwin Meese and then defended by Robert Bork in his doomed nomination for the Supreme Court. Soon it became a comfortable talking point. It resonated with conservative religious practice, a form of constitutional fundamentalism and literalism. It coincided with founders chic, all the thick biographies of the founding generation. By the time of her confirmation hearing, Elena Kagan would quip, we are all originalists now. At times, the approach has helped forge a majority for unexpected rulings on criminal justice. And it's worth remembering that just yesterday in her dissent on the West Virginia versus EPA ruling, Elena Kagan actually wrote, if the current rate of emissions continues, children born this year could live to see parts of the eastern seaboard swallowed by the ocean. Oh, yes. Poseidon must be angry. If we don't act now to curb emissions, the sun is going to attack the earth and kill the earth and all of us. And the earth will cease to exist, which, you know, is complete and total nonsense. It would be more legitimate if they tried to convince us that humans would be wiped off the earth in the sun's attack on the planet. But of course, they already want to depopulate the earth. So to them, that argument doesn't really make sense. The same people who are telling us that they plan on uploading their brains to the cloud so that they can live forever are also telling us that we must do things to threaten our own well-being in order to preserve the future of the planet exactly as it exists now, even though the planet has been changing the entire time well before humans ever began populating the planet in the first place. The ocean is going to swallow the eastern seaboard if we don't curb emissions. Therefore, she disagrees with a constitutional reading of the separation of powers. And of course, she was told that by the science and by the experts, you know, all the people who think masks and lockdowns worked and vaccines were very safe and effective. But the Supreme Court rarely pretended it could just take a time machine to ask the guys in powdered wigs what to do. Justice Antonin Scalia's big ruling in 2008's D.C. versus Heller purported to rely on history when he found that it recognized an individual right to own a gun to protect hearth and home. But it also made clear the vast majority of gun rules to protect public safety could stand. Scalia was asked what the difference was between him and Justice Clarence Thomas. I am an originalist. I am not a nut. That was Scalia's quote. Well, it was Thomas who wrote the majority opinion in last Thursday's big Second Amendment case. In New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, the court struck down New York's 1911 law largely prohibiting people from carrying a concealed weapon in the Big Apple. Thomas's opinion mentions public safety as a goal precisely once in 63 pages and only to criticize an earlier ruling that used that rationale. Regulation of firearms has ebbed and flowed. 
During periods of high crime, we tightened gun laws and with good reason. Times change. An honest reading of history would acknowledge this fact. Thomas makes no effort to understand the reason why the law was enacted over a century ago, how it has worked, or the fact that New York and other states with a similar law have lower rates of gun crime than elsewhere. And this is an interesting sleight of hand this very intellectual person is performing here. And it is similar to communist arguments in general. This writer is claiming that Clarence Thomas has a responsibility to understand the social context in which this law was enacted. As if that social context has some bearing on what the Constitution was written to protect and require. He's asking Thomas to examine the original intent of that law, leaving aside the original intent of the actual Constitution, because that original intent is just unknowable. And it was a different world back then. But 100 years ago, the intent of this law was totally knowable. The social context was knowable. And now, you know, we have the statistics to say that everything got better after that. Are there competing statistics? Of course. Is he going to list them? No. And as we heard Hillary Clinton criticize in the clip from earlier, we are being given a results oriented interpretation. The writer is not arguing that the decision was constitutional. He's arguing that the decision was the right one because of the social context and that it has proven to be the right decision based on statistics. But those are arguments that should convince legislators. And if those arguments were solid enough to convince legislators, then maybe the legislators would legislate in a different way and we'd have a different outcome. But at no point are those arguments about the constitutionality of that law. Instead, Thomas ransacked the historical record, classic law office history that seeks supporting evidence. Justice Stephen Breyer's dissent mocked the opinion. Some of the laws New York has identified are too old, but others are too recent. Still, others did not last long enough. Some applied to too few people. Some were enacted for the wrong reasons. Some may have been based on a constitutional rationale that is now impossible to identify. Some arose in historically unique circumstances, and some are not sufficiently analogous to the licensing regime at issue here. Dr. Seuss could not have said it better. And that argument should be very appealing to the child brains the Brennan Center is focused on convincing of its viewpoint. The most dangerous part of the ruling was the court's new doctrine that all gun regulation must now be assessed only by looking at, quote unquote, history and tradition. This approach will now be parsed and followed by judges all across the country, forced to play as amateur historians looking for analogies. Where do modern weapons, modern needs, modern sensitive places like the subway fit in? We don't know. And it's funny that he brought up the subway example. New York had its concealed carry law in place and there was a subway shooting. Now, we stopped hearing about that shooting almost immediately because it was a black man who was doing the shooting. But nonetheless, a subway shooting happened in New York City. If there had been someone on that train with a concealed weapon who was confident in using that weapon, it's quite possible that person could have stopped that subway shooting. I wonder why this writer doesn't think that social context is important. 
Thomas's opinion in Bruin shows that for all its pretense, originalism in the hands of this court was fake. Samuel Alito's use of originalism in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization shows it to be dangerous and reactionary. Dobbs distorts history too. abortion was legal at the time of the founding up until quickening, but faced bans later in the 19th century. But here was the heart of Alito's opinion. The court finds that the right to abortion is not deeply rooted in the nation's history and tradition. What that means in practical terms is the court looked to a time when women could not vote or sit on juries, when black people were slaves, when sexual orientation was a shameful secret. The opinion purported to just turn the issue of abortion rights over to the people in the states. But in terms of the Constitution, it would repeal the 20th century. So dramatic. So dramatic. And isn't it interesting, this next sleight of hand we can point out, he just conflated the concept of something being legal with the concept of having a right to do that thing. Abortion being legal at the time of the founding does not mean that the founders and the framers installed the right to abortion into the Constitution. And of course, this writer can't think his way out of a cardboard box. He is self-defeating within his own piece. Slavery was legal at the time the Constitution was written. That doesn't mean that the Constitution has written into it a right to slavery. But forget about that. We don't need to confuse the intellectuals too much, especially not while they're busy defending the rights of women and black people and gay people. That is when they are their most heroic and most easily confused. So it's important not to distract them. It fell to Thomas to spell out the consequences of this vision targeting marriage equality, LGBTQ rights, and the right to contraception, among other things. And of course, that's not what he did. But it turns out that cases that depended on the reasoning in Roe versus Wade and Casey, which were wrongly decided and set poor precedent, could be threatened in certain legal ways now that those decisions have been overturned. That is just a reality. Implying that there was an intent to target those things with this decision is pretty silly. At least 10 of his former clerks are now federal judges. We can expect some to pick up on his hint and take up the cause in months to come. Oh, no. How can we allow people with the wrong opinions to be judges? Yes, those appalled by these rulings should make the point that they mangle history. We will have no choice but to point to other better readings of the past. But it is well past time that liberals on and off the court spell out why this approach, this sudden conversion to originalism in the two biggest cases of the year, is an absurd way to run a country or interpret a constitution. It cloaks conservative policy choices in pretentious garb. But it is hardly a coincidence that these two rulings would allow red states to ban abortions while barring blue states from regulating guns. And again, that's because one of those things was a right guaranteed in the Constitution. And one of those things wasn't mentioned at all. Justice William Brennan Jr. rebuked the first arguments for originalism in the 1980s. 
We current justices read the Constitution in the only way that we can. As 20th century Americans, he said then, we look to the history of the time of framing and to the intervening history of interpretation. But the ultimate question must be, what do the words of the text mean in our time? For the genius of the Constitution rests not in any static meaning it might have had in a world that is dead and gone, but in the adaptability of its great principles to cope with current problems and current needs, which is essentially an argument for legislating from the bench as if the Constitution does not exist at all, as if the role of the Supreme Court is to simply make sure that certain kinds of laws can be passed regardless of their constitutionality, because what the Supreme Court exists to do is give their stamp of approval and say that whatever these new laws are, if it can be argued that they're necessary, then become constitutional as long as enough justices on the Supreme Court say it is. And this is one of the ways they have continued to advance the ball down the field, even without the will of the people supporting them and what they're doing. Today, we might find Brennan's argument too vague, too much a cloak for liberal justices making liberal rulings. But now we have conservative justices pretending to use history to advance their own policy goals. Liberals and progressives will need to offer robust and persuasive public arguments. That's important for the courts. It's even more important for the court of public opinion. Brennan's basic point was enduring and right. The only way a great nation can govern itself is to recognize that the Constitution respects and advances the great goals of freedom, dignity and democracy in a changing country in changing times. Right now, as used by this court, Originalism just provides cover for a right-wing political agenda. And to paraphrase Antonin Scalia, of all people, it's nuts. Trying to judge constitutionality based on the Constitution is nuts. What we really need to do is consider social context and a set of statistics that support one's view on the social context. And the argument is that that is basically necessary because everyone does it anyway. These people actually believe that because they are always trying to seize power and enforce their will, that everybody is trying to do it. These conservative justices are just lying about why they're doing it. They're saying that what they're doing is related to the Constitution. But they're just implementing their social agenda as well. These sorts of people are so corrupt, so self-obsessed and so self-righteous that they don't think anyone else could possibly not be that same way. They're now basically past the point where they even pretend that there's something important other than their political agenda. The political agenda is all that matters. They used to hide it, but that's over. Now all that matters is what they're able to call dangerous or racist or sexist or homophobic or anti-science. They opine about the eastern seaboard being swallowed by the ocean. Historians are going to wonder if Elena Kagan's decision is part of Greek mythology. But the institutions don't matter. The history doesn't matter. 
The framework of the country doesn't matter. America as a constitutional republic doesn't matter. All that matters is we advance the global communist agenda and figure out how to seize the power no matter what. They don't care about the institutions of the country because they don't care about the country. They literally want to end America. They want to make America part of a global community. They will still leave the name America on it for a while, but America, as it was created, is now nothing more than an inconvenience for them. It's an obstacle and all obstacles must be removed because they are going to steamroll the country. And you can see it with your own eyes. And the truth is those liberals, those Biden voters who you're going to be around, they can see it too. Now it's time for them to understand the implications of all that. Everyone have a happy 4th of July. I will almost definitely see you back here on Tuesday, not on Monday. So yes, I will be back on Tuesday at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes. 
with each episode. I'll see you soon, down on the range. It's hell!